Well, hey, let's uh, imitate our brothers in India now. Let's stand together and read our passage in unison, if we could. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. It's on the screen. Here it is for you. You can read it off the screen, or if you need some help with your bifocals, you can open up there and read it off of your Bibles. Here we go, church. Let's read this together, and let's read it with conviction. Can we do that? Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody. And as you're being seated, go ahead and take your Bibles and let's turn to that passage and we can follow along as we go in our series, Holy and Holy. We come today to what you might call the grand theme of the book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 through 17. If you had to summarize the essence of this book in one statement, you couldn't do any better than Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is the quintessential distillation of this book. And it's creedal, too. That's what I love about this passage. It's creedal. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. As if to say to the church in Rome, you do like me. You don't be ashamed either. As if to say to the church in Decatur right now, you don't be ashamed either of the gospel. Why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation. What a statement. What a, what a way to advocate for the gospel, to say it that way. You know, this particular passage, Romans 1:17, was especially significant in the life of one well-known person. In the 16th century, there was an Augustinian monk who was desperately trying to earn his own salvation. He was working, 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 trying to earn his salvation. He was trying to make himself holy and acceptable to God. And when he couldn't do that by his actions, he would try to supplement his actions with confession. So this monk would go to his fellow monks at the monastery and confess and confess and confess his sins. He would take hours to do that, trying to, to, to remember every evil thought, every, every unholy detail in his life. And these confession times would go so long that when the other monks saw him coming, they would run away. Nobody wanted to hear his confessions. You know, nobody wanted to stay for hours in the confessional listening to this guy agonizingly recount every sin in his life. And they thought he was crazy. By the way, he started to go crazy. So what'd they do with him? They sent him to teach as a professor in a college. Because that's where crazy people go, right? To teach a college. Just kidding, George Bennett, just kidding. No, they sent him to teach at college because he was brilliant. And yet he was, he was still troubled by his sins. He felt unworthy. He felt unrighteous before a holy God. But then this monk read Romans 1, 17. 
And he learned about a righteousness that comes by faith. You know, this monk had been terrified by the righteousness of God. He he viewed God's righteousness as judgment against his own unrighteousness. But finally, he realized that salvation is found in believing the gospel and receiving the righteousness of God as a gift from God. He realized that salvation is found in Christ's righteousness, not his own. Who are we talking about here? Who are we talking about? Martin Luther. Luther talked about his conversion this way. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. He was going crazy. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Luther says, I did not love, yea, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, I was angry towards God. I wonder how many people in this world right now are are like that. They're just angry at God because their righteousness can't match God's righteousness, and they don't know what to do about that. But then Luther, after studying Romans 117, he says, at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before I hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul, Romans 1.17, the passage that we're studying today, thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. From that point forward, Luther became a, a shameless advocate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luther, Luther could say, like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lived his life in such a way. The question this morning, Harvest Decatur, listen, this isn't, this isn't really about Paul. This isn't really about Martin Luther. This is about you. This is about me. This is about are we unashamed? Are we shameless for the gospel like they were shameless for the gospel? Can you now, Harvest Decatur, say that with a conviction that Paul said it 2,000 years ago? Somebody comes to you, puts a gun to your head, threatens to pull the trigger because of your faith in Christ. What do you say in that moment? Do you say, look, I don't want to die. I don't want you to pull that trigger, but I will not renounce Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am not afraid. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So you you do what you have to do, but I will not renounce my Lord. This is a little more probable in our day. Your boss calls you into his office, her office, says something like, listen, we've heard that you're a Christian, and we've, we've heard that you're, you've been outspoken, more outspoken about your faith than, than meets our comfort level. You need to keep silent about that. You're not allowed to talk about religion at the workplace or to proselytize your coworkers. You don't think that's a reality in our day? Absolutely, it's a reality in our day. What do you say? What do you, do, what do you say in that moment? Do you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. 
I cannot keep silent. I cannot stay silent. Yeah, 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 I get it. I know, I know. It's, you have to be shrewd at the workplace. I get it. There's a place for shrewdness. There's also a place for courage and boldness and standing by your Lord. Paul and Martin Luther had a lot more to lose in their day than you do by being faithful to Christ. Those, those Indian brothers that we saw on the screen have a lot more to lose than you do by being faithful to Christ. What are you going to do in that moment? Your friends call you out of school for being a Christian. They call you out. They say, you're one of those Christians, huh? You're one of those intolerant people who thinks homosexuality is a sin. You think abortion is murder. You think sex outside of marriage is sinful. Are you really one of those Christians? Do you really believe that? What do you say in that moment? Do you say, maybe with a tear in your eye and and an intonation of love in your voice, Look, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation for those who believe. And I want you to believe it too, the truth of the gospel. I want you to experience that power that I've experienced. Is that you, Harvest Decatur? Is that, is that how you represent Christ before the world? The British preacher and commentator John Stott, he said once that You can read this on the screen. He says, whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition, often contempt, sometimes ridicule. Can we handle that? Can we handle that? Are we we unashamed? Are we shameless for the gospel even in the face of opposition, contempt, ridicule? Here's your outline for today. Why are we shameless for the gospel? Why are we shameless for the gospel? Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Luther wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Why weren't they? I'll give you two answers to that question this morning. Here's the first. They weren't ashamed of the gospel because they knew, and I hope you know this too, the gospel has the power for salvation. It is power for salvation Paul says this in verse 16 he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel by the way verse 16 that four in verse 16 it's it's a connecting conjunction and it connects back to the last verse verse 14 the last few words in verse verse 15 sorry where Paul says in verse 15 I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome but see that in your Bible verse 15 Why, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? Here's why. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. That word power here is the Greek word dunamis. And we derive our English word dynamic from this word, dunamis. Sometimes preachers get a little too excited about, uh, a little carried away with this word and They talk about the word dynamite, which derives from dunamis, and they say when Paul says this, he means dynamite. Well, the problem with that is dynamite didn't exist in Paul's day, so he couldn't possibly have meant that. The other problem with that interpretation, and you're probably thinking this right now, is, you know, what does dynamite do? It blows stuff up. Is that what Paul's talking about here? No, it, you know, dynamite is destructive. Paul's talking about something that's, that's constructive. He's talking about something that's, that's got power.
power, constructive, dynamic power for salvation. This has power for salvation. The gospel has the power to save. Now, how does the gospel have power to save? What is the gospel? We've spent some time talking about this already in our series. What is the gospel? Let me give you Paul's answer to that in 1 Corinthians 15. This is on the screen. Alvin McLean calls this the best condensed statement of the gospel in Paul's writings. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do you believe that, Harvest Decatur? Is that the gospel that you've embraced? If it is, then praise God. You have the power for salvation through the gospel. You are saved. You will spend eternity with the Lord. Paul says this gospel, this, is, this gospel is the power of God for salvation. Look at verse 16. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said in verse 2 that he had been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Those Holy Scriptures were the, the Jewish Scriptures of the Old Testament. The gospel was promised beforehand to the Jews. It was written down and passed down by the Jews. The gospel uh, came to the Jews. Came. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. In the book of Acts, it was preached first to the Jews and then on to the Gentiles. The gospel spread through the Jewish regions first in the book of Acts, and then God, by God's grace, it spread to the, the Gentiles, the Greeks. Paul refers to them as Greeks at the end of verse 16, this is the Greek word, Helene. And, you know, we, maybe y'all have heard this before. We derive our English word, Hellenization, from this Greek word. Hellenization, it, it, it means the, the spread of the Greek language and the Greek culture throughout the ancient world. Alexander the Great had a part in that, as well as other Greek rulers. The, the Hellenizing of barbarians and so forth. When Paul uses that word, Helene, he's basically referring to all the non-Jewish people in the world. Whether they be cultured, Greek-speaking, um, you know, Hellenized Gentiles, or the barbarian Gentiles, too, like you and me in America. The gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. Jew, Greek, barbarian. Let me say that again. The gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. Everyone. Whether they're Jew, Greek, barbarian, American, African, Asian, Indian, everyone and anyone who believes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. And that's where our power is found, the power for salvation. Now let me be clear about this too. Let me be clear about what's not the gospel because there's a lot of people going around in our day saying gospel, gospel, gospel and they don't mean what we mean when they say gospel. 
I'll give you a few examples of that. This is in your notes under false gospel. False gospels, plural. First of all, there's the prosperity gospel. Some of you might say, again, Pastor Tony's going to hammer on this again? Yeah, I am, because it's not going away. And, you know, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel in accordance with the scriptures. It's not the gospel at all. It's the idea that, you know, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, and if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's not the gospel. That's not what we believe. That's a perversion of the gospel. And, and I know it might seem like I'm railing on this all the time. It's, you know, the prosperity gospel, it's, it's, like an, it's like an axe murderer in a horror movie. Like everywhere I go, it just kind of shows up everywhere. Taking out churches, taking over churches, and I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, I, go to, I go to India. You know, I'm 8,000 miles away from America. And I'm talking to these brothers, and I'm asking them, what's, what's the most difficult challenge that you're facing in the church? And, you know, they could have said Hinduism. They could have said the government there that's oppressing and persecuting the Christians. They could have said Muslims in their country that don't like Christians. India has the second largest Muslim population in the world. You know what they told me was the greatest hindrance to their work? the greatest struggle in the church, these prosperity preachers that are going around trying to represent Christianity in India. And I, I was ashamed of that. Coming from my country. And I feel like part of me wants to go to India just to counter all the stupidity of the, 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 the false gospels that get spread from our country to places like that. I asked them, what, you know, who are you talking about? I said, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Benny Hinn. All this garbage that people call gospel coming from America. If you follow Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true and you'll be wealthy and prosperous. And I say, Pastor Tony, you sound angry. I am angry. I say, Pastor Tony, you're jet lagged. No, I'm not. Well, yes, I am. But that's not why I'm angry. I'm angry because the gospel is being perverted around the country, around the world, and the culprits are us, our country. There's also what's been historically called the social gospel. Here's another false gospel. The social gospel advocates for feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, pursuing social justice, which, I mean, those are all good things. But the social gospel doesn't do that in an effort to lead people to Christ or an outworking of their faith. They do that as an end in itself. And many social gospel advocates don't even talk about the cross. They don't like the cross of Jesus. They don't, you know, the great social gospel advocate at the turn of the 20th century was a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. And Rauschenbusch said this. He said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven. Really now? Really? The kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven there's also something called the self-esteem gospel. You guys know about this because it's, it's everywhere. Stand in front of a mirror, pump yourself up. Doggone it, people do like me. <laughs> I am special. And we don't mention sin. We don't acknowledge our guilt before a righteous God. We just puff ourselves up with self-esteem. 
try to improve humanistically our self-image. This is the religion of Norman Vincent Peale. Y'all know who that is? Wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. He's been very influential with people like Oprah Winfrey, Tony Robbins, Joel Osteen, and others. He was honored by presidents like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. He's also a heretic who rejected Orthodox Christianity. He said in one interview, he said, it's not necessary to be born again. Really? It's not? Really? This is a theologian? It's not necessary to be born again, he said. You have your way to God, I have mine. I found eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. Christ is one of the ways and God is everywhere. What do you all think about that, Harvest Decatur? Darius voting that down. <laughs> Does that sound up there? I mean, is that something that Paul would say? Tommy Nelson said this once. He said, if you find Norman Vincent Peale appealing, you'll find the Apostle Paul appalling. <laughs> if you find Paul appealing, you'll find Peale appalling. I myself, says Nelson, find Peel appalling, not appealing, and Paul appealing, not appalling. <laughs> Lately here in America, we've got this thing called the love-only gospel. In this gospel, there's no mention of sin. There's no mention of repentance. God is not a God of holiness or righteousness or wrath. He's a love-only God. And that's in the way that we define love. He's a sentimental God. He's a squishy God that we can manipulate to do whatever we want him to do and to embrace whatever we want to embrace. Then there's the good works gospel. This is the default mode of most human beings in all religions outside of Christianity. You've got to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. You got to do X, Y, and Z and hope it's enough to outweigh your bad. You got to do this much good and hopefully it's more than your bad and at the end of your life, maybe God will accept you. You know, some people trust in the cross of Jesus Christ for their salvation. You can, you can count me as one of those number. Some people trust in the cross of Jesus Christ for their salvation. Other people trust in another cross. They trust in this cross. Ooh, I hope I did enough. I hope I did enough to be saved. Which cross are you trusting in? Is this, is this what you're trusting in? Oh, I hope, I hope it's enough. That'll make you crazy if you try to live like that. It made Martin Luther crazy. I'm surprised more people out there aren't crazy in this world. Because how can you ever be sure of anything? How can you ever be sure that you did enough? How can you ever know that you got to the depth of your sin inside of you that's spilling out all over the place? Which cross are you trusting in? Are we done with the false gospels? Can we move on now? You guys, if, if you're done, just say enough. Enough? Let's go to the true gospel. Let's go to the true gospel, the one that Paul reveals here. But first, go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Why are we not ashamed of the gospel? First of all, it has the power for salvation. Secondly, it reveals the righteousness of God. Here's the true gospel. Paul says this in verse 17. He says, for in it, everybody see that in your Bibles? What's the it in verse 17? For in it, do you know? 
It's the gospel from verse 16. So let's read verse 17 that way. For in the gospel. By the way, you know, in terms of your Bible study, one of the best things that you can do for Bible study to really kind of unpack the text is take all the pronouns and find out who they're referring to. So look at every he, she, or it. Look at every you, yours, and theirs and try to line that up with the referent, what they're referring to. So that should help you in your Bible study. It's helped me immensely as I've worked through different passages. Back to verse 17. So we're talking about the gospel here. Paul says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it, that is scripture, as scripture is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why are we not ashamed of the gospel? Because it has power for salvation and it reveals the righteousness of God. Which begs the question, how does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? How does it do that? What does that mean that God's righteousness is revealed? Let's answer that. The word for revealed here is the Greek word apocalypto. Let's turn to your neighbor right now. Here's your Greek word for the day, apocalypto. It means to reveal or to disclose. The word apocalypse is similar to this word. The book of Revelation is often called the apocalypse. It's God's great revelation of what will happen at the end of human history. So, I mean, let's just go back to Martin Luther for a second. You can imagine Martin Luther, he reads Apocalypto in uh, Romans 1 about God's righteousness that would be revealed, and he was terrified. God's righteousness is going to be revealed? He, he was terrified because he didn't want God's righteousness revealed. If God's righteousness was revealed, that would mean that his unrighteousness would be exposed. God would crush him in his wrath and in his anger. And so, I mean, that, that was terrifying to Luther. But is that what Paul's talking about here in verse 17? Is he saying that God's righteousness is revealed to crush us? No. And this is what eventually Luther was able to see. God's righteousness isn't revealed to crush us. Not if we have faith. If we have faith, God's righteousness is revealed inside us to save us. It's to save us. God's righteousness is made available to human beings. It is, in fact, imputed to us based on faith. So, here we go. Here's the point. God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. It's the greatest deal in human history. You believe and you get Christ's righteousness. Didn't cost you anything, it cost God everything. God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. God's holiness becomes our holiness. God's sinlessness, specifically Christ's sinlessness, becomes our sinlessness. We who are holy, unholy, are declared holy, holy before a holy God. We who are holy, unrighteous, are declared holy, righteous before a righteous God. And at the end of verse 17, it says, because of this, we can live. We don't have to die for eternity. We can live. We are righteous because of Christ, so we can live forever and escape death. Why? Because of righteousness. Because the righteous shall live by faith, and Christ has given us his righteousness. Are we saved by our own righteousness? No. Absolutely not. 
someone asked Pastor Harry Ironside once, they asked him, what did you do to procure your salvation? He told them, I sinned. That's what I did. And Jesus saved me. What'd you do? What'd you do, Christian, to procure your salvation? I'll tell you what you did. You sinned. Here's the good news. God saves only sinners. So good job out of you, sort of. (laughs) We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith. We are saved by believing in the good work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Here's how the hymn writer Augustus Toplady says it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Y'all heard that before? That's good stuff. That's 250 year old good stuff. Some good stuff lasts forever. Fanny Crosby says it this way. Tis not by works that we have done our souls redeemed shall be, but by the blood of God's dear son who died on Calvary. Paul closes out verse 17 by linking this great argument that he's making to scripture, to the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. Paul is bound and determined to show his readers that the gospel has been preached, that's been being preached, was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. Remember that from chapter 1, verse 2. Paul is bound and determined to link the gospel in his arguments to the Old Testament. And in fact, I, I mean, I've done some research on this recently. I did some research actually in preparation for the class I taught in India. And one of the things that I found out is that, you know, Paul is repeatedly throughout the book of Romans citing the Old Testament, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly citing, quoting the Old Testament. And in fact, there are nearly three times more Old Testament citations in Romans than all of the rest of Paul's books put together. There's 67 in Romans. And there's only 23 in the rest of Paul's books. And 25% of the New Testament citations of the Old Testament are in the book of Romans, 67 out of 238. That's a lot of Old Testament citations in one book. Here's one of them. Here in verse 17, Paul justifies this great theme of his book, the righteousness of God is by faith. How does he justify it? By quoting the Old Testament. And where does that quote come from? It comes from the book of Habakkuk. And at this point, this is where the pastor jokes about how you guys never read the book of Habakkuk and you don't even know where it is. Not so, Harvest Decatur. Because we read through this a few months ago, didn't we? In our series, How Long, O Lord. So you know all about the book of Habakkuk. Good job out of you, Harvest Decatur. I don't have a daughter. But if I had a daughter... And some boy came to my house 
wanted to take her out on a date, I would say, son, before you take my daughter on a date, I want you to tell me how you enjoy the book of Habakkuk. <laughs> if you can do that, you can take my daughter on a date. What do y'all think about that, dads? Dads of daughters, y'all like that? Some of you are saying, if my father-in-law did that to me, we would have never gotten married, <laughs> Pastor Tony, so... So maybe you didn't know when you were dating your future wife about the book of Habakkuk, but you should know now. What's the message of the book of Habakkuk? Do you remember from the series? Babylonians are coming to punish the Israelites. God revealed this to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is angry with the Lord. He complains before the Lord. He says, how can you use that wicked nation Babylon to punish us? I know we've been bad, Lord, but we're much better than those lousy Babylonians. And so God comforts his whiny prophet by saying, listen, Habakkuk, don't you worry about the Babylonians. They're going to get what's coming to them. You've got to trust me. The righteous will live by faith. I'll be faithful to you. You put your faith in me. Just trust me, okay, Habakkuk? And by the end of the book, Habakkuk does finally trust the Lord and stops complaining. Well, Paul picks up on that theme from the book of Habakkuk here. In fact, Paul, Paul picks up on a theme that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says this is a universal principle. Church in Rome, God saves those who have faith because the righteous shall live by faith. Can I just let you in on a little secret, Harvest Decatur? Abraham in the Old Testament was saved by faith. The Old Testament Israelites, with their sacrificial system and all that and the law, they were saved by faith. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament was saved by faith. The Romans in the church in Rome were saved by faith. Martin Luther was saved by faith. You, if you are saved, were saved by faith. I have been saved by faith. We are saved by faith. It's a universal truth. And Paul says it, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're an Old Testament Israelite, New Testament Christian, Old Testament believer, New Testament believer. We are saved, we are justified before a righteous God. We are made righteous before a righteous God by faith. You gotta believe. This is the gospel. This is what has power for salvation. And the gospel, Paul says, this gospel that has this power and that reveals this righteousness of God, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm not either. I, if I could just confess to you this morning, it's pastoral confession time. I promise I won't go on for hours and hours and hours like Martin Luther. There was a time when I was ashamed. I don't know if ashamed is the right word. There was, there was a time when I was bashful. I know that's impossible to believe. There was a time when I was timid and, and reserved about my faith. I'm not that way anymore. 
I just don't care what people think about, not about that anyway. I want them to know that Jesus Christ is my Savior, and more importantly than that, I want them to know my Savior. We'll all be dead soon. Seriously, what are we doing? What are we doing? I want people to know my faith, and I want people to know Christ like I know Christ. I heard a story once about President George W. Bush that uh, he got into this argument once with his mom. And, you know, if you know anything about the Bush family, you know that Barbara Bush was this, you know, person who was revered by her children. They loved her. They respected her. And yet, you know, George W. got into this argument about with her, and he said that the Christian faith was something that should be public. We should be public about it. And Barbara Bush disagreed. You know, she was from this Episcopalian background and this Episcopalian tradition that viewed faith as something privatized. You didn't talk about it. You didn't open up about it publicly. It was just between you and God, and you kept it to yourself. Well, George W. disagreed. I mean, you guys know. You remember from his presidency. He was very open about his faith in Christ. And he, he said, no, we need to be public about it. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm with George W. on that issue. I mean, Barbara Bush, sure, she was good, first lady and all, but I, I disagree. We need to be public. I, I want people to know about my faith. And even more than that, I want them to know Christ like I know Christ. I want them to know the gospel. Why? Why, Pastor Tony? Why do you want them to know the gospel? Because the gospel is the power for salvation for all who believe and the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. I want people to know that. I'll close with this, and then we can sing together. Tim Keller said once that oftentimes when people talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are three responses that people have. He says they are shrugged, they are bugged, or they are smug. Shrug, bugged, or smug. Let's look at these. The shrugged response. This is the person who just kind of shrugs their shoulders when you share your faith with them. They say, eh. She hears the gospel and says, yeah, okay, whatever. You tell them, maybe even passionately, you can know the Savior of the universe. You can have your sins forgiven. I want you to know this. I want you to embrace this. I want you to experience life forever with Jesus like I've experienced. And you lay it out before them and they just, eh. They shrug. There's also the bugged response. You pour out your heart, you tell someone about the gospel and they get agitated. What do you mean by calling me a sinner? I'm better than that guy over there. I don't hurt people intentionally. I don't do bad stuff. You Christians are so judgmental. I don't need this. They're bugged. And by the way, if you're going to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, if you're going to be unashamed, be ready to bug some people, okay? The gospel is offensive to those who don't repent. It's meant to be that way. And you got to risk that. 
If you're gonna represent Christ in this world, then there's the smug response. Some of you might have experienced this. Oh, you Christians. You Christians, always, always needing a crutch. You know, Karl Marx is right about you, opiate of the masses, you and your religion. I guess that's fine for you, this Christianity business, but I don't need that. Belief in God is passe, man. Belief in God is for the unenlightened. Belief in God is for the unsophisticated. Shrugged, bugged, or smug. It's common responses. And by the way, I don't think Paul was a stranger to any of these things. A Scottish pastor named James Stewart, he said perceptively that there's no reason in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. I think that's right. Why would Paul have been tempted to be ashamed? You know, Rome was the leading metropolitan center of the world. Paul was bringing to these sophisticates the story of a Jewish carpenter who rose from the dead and claimed to be the very son of God. That's a hard sell in Rome. So Paul writing to this little church, the most important city in the world at that time, maybe he was tempted to be ashamed. This is the cultural and economic hub of the entire Roman Empire. It's a place where Christians and Jews were routinely persecuted and at one time were kicked out of the city. Paul may even at times been tempted to be embarrassed about his affiliation with this Jewish carpenter who died shamefully on a cross and claimed to be the son of God. But Paul saw the Son of God risen on that road to Damascus. Paul saw Jesus Christ and he heard him on the Damascus road when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul believes that Christ and Christ alone is the means of salvation for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And so Paul says this to us to embrace as our own creed before the world. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. So what's it going to be, Harvest Decatur? Shrug, bugged, smug, or shameless for the gospel? Shameless. Shameless for Jesus. Let's be shameless for him. Let's bow in a word of prayer and pray to that end as a church. God, let me represent our church before you right now with this statement. We are not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel has saved our souls. And we believe, we believe, we believe that you died on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that you were raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. We believe. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to empower us with such an awesome boldness in this world. 
God, I pray against a spirit of timidity or shame or fear. God, give us confidence in Christ, our Savior, to represent you before this world. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for the righteousness that you've given us. It's not in ourselves, Lord. That righteousness is not there. But you've given it to us by your grace, through faith. We are reckoned righteous before you by our faith. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.